Good morning, Prairie Hill. I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 12 in your Bible. I want to welcome you to worship. I want to welcome you to worship again at uh, 5 p.m. tonight back here in this room. If, uh, if you're looking for a peaceful, Christ-centered way to end your weekend and go into the new week, um, I want to invite you to come to PM. That's our evening worship service uh, this spring. Five o'clock in this room, we'll, um, we'll have communion. We'll keep singing, and we'll spend time in prayer and uh, a few other things as well. Okay, Luke 12. Passage in front of us today is, uh, is a parable. Parable is a story that's constructed to teach a central truth. Parable teaches one main truth. It's a story told for that purpose. Jesus told a lot of parables. You, you know by name many of them. Uh, the Good Samaritan is a parable. We covered that a few weeks ago. You've heard of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. That's Luke 15. We'll be there in a few weeks. Parables, I think, are um, enjoyable. They're impactful. The one we're looking at today is usually referred to as the parable of the rich fool. This is uh, the, the middle part of Luke 12. Okay, so let's read it. And let's think through the particulars and notice where it intersects with our lives. Now, the the parable that we're going to read today is about a man who thinks that he has many years left to live. But in reality, he, he only has a few hours. And so knowing that we share that same possibility that as humans, we too are marching toward our own death at an hour that we don't know. Our concern here in coming to a parable about money isn't so much behavior modification. Our goal is not just to modify our behavior and live a little bit better and maybe be a little bit more generous to our fellow man. That'd be one way to take the parable. That is important, but more important than that is that when the hour of your death comes that you be found um, to not be a fool as this man was, right? So let's read it first. This is Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. We're going to read through verse 21, and then we'll talk about it together. All right? If you're able to stand this morning, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? 
And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Father, I want to to come to you before we begin uh, talking about the words of your beloved son. We want to admit to you that some of us are on a peak this morning where uh, life feels exciting and fresh. Some of us, uh, on the other hand, are in a valley. Life feels dark and difficult. All of us are in need of Jesus. We need his teaching. We need his cleansing blood. We need his leadership. We need his comfort. And we need his presence. May Christ be real to us in these moments as we chew on his word. May he be real and beautiful and satisfying. We ask in his holy name and for his sake, amen. Please be seated. All right, before we get to the parable, let's, let's take just a moment and address Jesus' response to this man who's requesting um, help from him. Did you find his response a little bit puzzling? His response can be puzzling. Someone in the crowd shouts out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And his response, verse 14, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? What is he saying? What does that mean? Why does he say that? You know, in a, in a technical, eternal sense, viewed, viewed technically and eternally, Jesus has been appointed a judge and an arbitrator over this man and his brother. Like, God actually has given him that role in a technical, eternal sense. That is his role. But Jesus seems to be rejecting that role here. Saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So what's, what's going on? Well, his, his choice of words, the, the words that he chooses to use in his response give us a big clue as to what's happening. His choice of words is nearly the exact same language that's directed at, at Moses in Exodus chapter 2. Did anyone pick up on that? Maybe, maybe if you've just been in Exodus 2 reading through the Bible, something, something caught you there and it was a little bit familiar. But... The, the wording Jesus uses is almost the exact same language that's directed 
to Moses in Exodus 2. Okay, so this is before Moses has received his commission from God at the burning bush to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Before God has appointed him to be the deliverer. Moses is attempting to break up a fight between two of his fellow Hebrews. He's frustrated because he goes out and he sees two Hebrews, two of his own countrymen, who are slaves to Egypt. Egypt is the enemy. Egypt is enslaving them. Egypt is the bad guy. He's the enemy. But two of his fellow Hebrews are fighting together, fighting amongst each other. And so he he breaks up the, the fight. He says, why do you strike your companion, right? He's asking these guys what's going on. And the one man answers back to him indignantly, who made you a prince and a judge over us? It's almost identical language to Luke twelve fourteen. Here's Moses, right? Got this big heart for his people. It's before God has commissioned him to be the deliverer. He's, remember, he kills the Egyptian first. He goes out, he sees an Egyptian like beating on a Hebrew. He kills him and buries him. He takes care of that little fire. Then he sees two Hebrews fighting together and he goes over and he breaks them up. Moses is running out trying to, he's like almost like a preschool teacher to put out this fire here. Okay, now I'm going to run over here and put out this little fire. And if I just do enough of this and solve all these little problems, then that's going to be deliverance. He, he hasn't received his commission from God yet. He's taking on his own mission of just trying to modify behavior and make everything okay, and then maybe everything will turn out okay. But that's not how deliverance is going to happen for Israel. That's not Moses' mission. He hasn't received his charge from God yet. His mission is so much bigger than that. The deliverance that God is going to provide for his people is so much bigger. Not just one Egyptian dead and and buried in the sand. The whole Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. Moses isn't just going to resolve these little disputes and make their life a little bit better there as slaves. Even if he breaks up this fight between these two guys, they're still slaves. He hasn't solved the huge problem. What does all this mean? Why are we talking about Moses in Egypt? Because when Jesus is presented with this petty dispute between two brothers... To Hebrews, he has to let them know, that's not my mission. That's not the deliverance that I came to accomplish. I'm not here for behavior modification. Your brother's not your adversary. He's not your true adversary. I'm here to deliver God's people from their huge, eternal adversary. Satan and the powers of evil. God's going to drown them all. Throw them all in the lake of fire. So Jesus in his response in this moment 
is recalling that moment from Moses' ministry and showing that his own mission, like Moses, is much, much bigger than resolving petty disputes. Right? Even if he breaks up this fight among the Hebrews, they're still slaves. Even if he arbitrates this issue between the, the man and the, his brother and the inheritance, they're, they're still sinful. They're still going to die in their sins. Jesus is going after sin. He's going after Satan. That's why he came. And so we see him in verse 15, turn and go on the attack against the real enemy, against sin. He goes to root sin issues. He goes to heart issues. Life and death issues. That's the deliverance that he came to accomplish. So in verse 15, he goes on the attack against one particular form of sin, covetousness. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay, so remember the beginning, we said a parable is constructed to teach one central truth. This is the central truth right here in verse 15. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's the truth. And to picture that truth and bring that truth to life, he tells this parable that we know is the rich fool. Okay, so here we go. Jesus is going to address our relationship with stuff. He's going to talk about our relationship with money and assets and holdings and goods. We're going to talk about our relationship with our wealth. We know this ride is not going to be comfortable the whole way through because we're really attached to that stuff. We're invited to consider this man. Jesus calls him a rich man in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So the, the outline for the rest of the way is we're going to notice three things about this man's life. His mistaken belief. His selfish practice. And his, his foolish life. The pronouncement of his life is foolish. Okay? Mistaken belief. Selfish practice, his foolish life. That's the, that's the outline. Get that set mentally. And then we'll apply these things to ourselves as we go. All right, so let's start with his mistaken belief. What does he believe that's wrong? His mistaken belief is that all of this is mine. Did you notice all those, what would that be? First person pronouns? First person possessive pronouns, my, 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 my. We see this come through in verse 17. If you'd like to look at it, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, look at this in verse 17 and just notice the, the, the repetition. My crops, my barns, there I will store all of my grain, my goods. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods. It even, verse 19, it even extends all the way to his soul. I will say to my soul, he holds the mistaken belief that all of this is mine. It belongs to me. I own it. And maybe you think the same way about the things that you have. Don't you know that everything that we have is on loan? 
just like it is for this rich man. Where did the land, where did the land come from that he's farming? Did he create the land? Is it going to be there after he's gone? Where did the produce of the land come from? All these, these crops that provide him with his wealth. I think one of the, probably my favorite sentence in this parable is in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Don't you love that? The land produced plentifully. Not him, it was the land. Where did that come from? And by the way, while we're talking about it, sir, where did your soul come from? Did you create that? Do you have any control over that? And when, when you die, who's going to have your goods then? Are you, you still going to own them? See, everything is on loan. God owns it all. God owns the land. God makes the land produce. It's his son. It's his reign. He controls it and he commands it. He gives it. He requires it. And yet this man uses this word that we love to use. Um, mine. It's my. I own it. Starts when we're very young, doesn't it? Right? Kids, grandkids, you, me, when we're two, it's mine. Not going to let you play with that. That belongs to me. This desire that we have deep within to, to possess and to own. And boy, does this Tolkien hit the nail on the head with his character Gollum. If you know, you're familiar with Tolkien's writings, how the, the ring just possesses this little guy. And it becomes obvious that he doesn't possess the ring, but the ring possesses him. Ownership, it's mine. That's how it can be with our possessions. That they have a way of controlling us. They can make us do things that betray our Christ-like character. The kingdom of God. So if you're just, just joining us at Prairie Hill, if you're just starting to be around for the first time, we're walking through the gospel of Luke, looking at the theme of the kingdom of God, learning what the kingdom of God is like. Well, this is one of the ways the kingdom of God is different. It's different from all of this ownership and mind stuff. In the kingdom of God, we see the opposite. Instead of the slavery of possession, the kingdom of God is all about the thrill of dispossession, the thrill of being out there trusting God to provide. Remember, we see Jesus encounter the rich young ruler who thinks he's doing everything right. You remember his instruction to him, go sell everything you own and give to the poor, then come follow me. Dispossession, get rid of it. If you look down at verse 33, right here in Luke chapter 12, same thing. Verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy. The thrill of dispossession. Acts 4, early days of the church. There wasn't a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds what was sold and gave it to the apostles. It was distributed as any had need. That's how the kingdom of God is different. We see the the freedom and the thrill of not possessing anything except for Jesus. 
Well, what's your view? What's your view about what's been entrusted to you? Are you, are you saying mine, clinging to it? Who does it belong to and what's it for? This rich man has decided what his wealth is for. The next thing we notice, we notice first his mistaken belief. The next thing we see is his selfish practice. So his mistaken belief, everything is mine, leads to his selfish practice, right? In verse 17, we see that he's got a, he's got a problem. What a great problem to have. The land produces bountifully. Well, what am I gonna do now? What shall I do, he's asking himself. That's his problem. I don't have enough storage for all my stuff. Not enough storage for the grain. And his solution uh, for that problem is not anything along the lines of, well, maybe I, could, maybe I could give some away to someone who needs it, or a portion of it, of course, I should offer to God. Nope, didn't think about this, didn't think about that. Those things apparently don't enter his mind, giving to others, giving to God. He sees, rather, a different kind of opportunity in his bountiful harvest. He sees the opportunity to provide additional security for himself. Ah, additional years of security for myself. Perfect. Yeah, that's it. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Of course, that's what he decides. Why why wouldn't he decide that? All of this stuff is his. It's for him. It's mine. It's not for these other folks. I own it. It's for me. So we see this is a very natural thing. We can understand it perfectly. We all have the same human nature. This desire to be secure. This makes perfect sense to us. Now, let's make an important distinction right here. Wealth is not the problem. Wealth is not the problem presented to us here. Someone having a lot of possessions, uh, being rich is not the problem. Also, saving, saving money for future security is also not presented as the problem. Notice what is presented as the problem. This is verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Okay, notice the problem is not laying up treasure for self. The problem is laying up treasure for self and not being rich toward God. The problem is not what is done. The problem is what is being neglected. This man is living life without reference to God. No reference to God at all. Which would, by the way, lead to love of neighbor. That would lead to caring about others. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. See the book of Matthew. See the book of James. See the book of Leviticus. The problem is living a life without reference to God. And it might be easy for you and me to look at this parable and let ourselves off the hook if we don't, 
if we don't think that we're rich, if we don't count ourselves as wealthy, we could maybe look at this parable and think this is only for people with lots of disposable income. It doesn't really apply to me. It would be a mistake to think that way. Any of us can live life without reference to God, whatever our income is. And, likewise, any of us can live life with reference to God on any amount of income, even no income. The question that a financially diverse body of believers should ask themselves individually is this. Is God getting what he deserves from me? Is he a part of my financial plans? Do God and others make a significant impact on my personal finances? Or do my actions show that I view what I have as mine, and it's really just for my pleasure, my security, my ease, my, my future? The, uh, the Barna Group probably does the most referenced research work in Christian circles. Their latest estimate, this is 2022, their latest estimate is that 40% of practicing Christians will tithe their income. 40%, four zero. So that means give at least 10% to God. I don't... Who knows if that percentage is uh, correct? It's, it's probably in the ballpark. What, whatever the case is, whatever the exact percentage is, I think it's safe to say that less than half of practicing Christians will tithe their, in, tithe their income. So think about it. The majority do not. The majority of practicing Christians do not tithe their income. Isn't that interesting? We might ask the question, well, why not? Part of it could be that the New Testament teaching on the subject is let everyone give as they determine to give in their own heart. Tithing is not a matter of law, but of individual conscience and determination. So maybe lack of law leads to lack of giving. Maybe it's other things. There are few things that show more vividly that someone is living their life with reference to God than them giving their money away to him. That must thrill God to no end to see a person who trusts him so much that they're just giving their money away. Money that could be used against future problems. Money that could be used for future security. Money that could be used for present pleasure. Okay, I know that at this point in a message like this, we've got you know, some some inner tension going on, maybe some inner guilt starting to build in people around the room, you know, as you hear 
church talking about personal finances and, and giving and all those things. I want to invite you to just let that go for a minute. This is not a guilt trip. I want to just invite you to take a deep breath and, and think about what a, what a tithe or an offering actually is. A tithe or an offering to God is a, is a thank you. It's an expression of gratitude for his provision. A tithe or, or, a, a tithe or an offering to God is uh, also an, an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that it's his. Everything is his. All of it came by your hand. A tithe or an offering is an act of faith toward God. You're telling God when you give to him, I trust that you can still provide for me or for us everything that we need, even if I give this away. I I trust that there will be enough left to live on. A tithe or an offering is not only an act of faith toward God, it's an act of generosity toward others. You know, God isn't receiving checks up in heaven and keeping a keeping his little treasure chest over here and accumulating lots and lots of wealth from people. No, he doesn't keep all that. It all flows out to other people. It all flows out for gospel ministry to meet physical and spiritual needs of other people. It's not only an act of faith toward God, it's an act of generosity toward people that need it, spiritually and physically. A tithe or an offering is a sacrifice. In some cases, a big sacrifice for you. It's our chance to be Christ-like and offer something costly to God. A tithe or an offering is also a sign of the kingdom. It's, it's a sign that points to the kingdom of God because when the world sees us just giving our money away, you know, when you have those conversations with your in-laws and whoever, like, you guys give your money to the church? You're, like, even 10%? Like, I know how much you make. You're giving 10% of that away? You're giving 12% of that away? It's a, it's a sign that there's, there is another world. There is another kingdom coming. There is life after death. This, it's a sign that this world is not all that there is. If this world is all that there is, it doesn't make any sense to give all your money away. but it's a sign that points to the coming kingdom of Christ. A tithe or an offering is all of those things. It's a thank you, it's an acknowledgement, it's an act of faith, an act of generosity, it's a sacrifice, it's a sign of the kingdom. So I just put this before you and ask you the question. You who um, are following Jesus and confessing that you're a Christian, but Practically speaking, in the particulars, like in the, in the weeds and details of life, do you live without reference to God? Do you treat him like he's not really there? Financially or in some other area? Is God getting what he deserves from you or have you fallen into um, a selfish practice of some kind? Okay. Well, the pronouncement at the end is that this man lived a foolish life. So mistaken belief, selfish practice, foolish life. Why, why foolish? What was his foolishness? 
He, in the end, is foolish because he thought his life consisted in the abundance of his possessions. Remember, that was the the one point of truth spoken against by Jesus at the beginning and the whole reason this parable gets told. This man was foolish because he thought his life consisted in the abundance of his possessions. He thought that's all there was to life. And therefore, because he thought life was all about future security and in the abundance of possessions, he made no provision at all for his soul. He thought his life consisted in the abundance of possessions and therefore he made no provision for his soul. He planned and he made provision for the many years of his life that he thought he had left, but he made no provision for the day of his death. See, he can't take any of his stuff with him when he dies. His goods won't offer him any security in death. They offered him lots of security in life. They can't do anything for him when he dies. We die and we stand before God empty-handed, a bare soul in front of him. And what will be our security then? See, our lives don't consist in the abundance of possessions. That's all temporary. That's not the stuff that life is made of. Your soul, your soul in relationship to God, that's what life consists of. What good will all of your possessions be on that day when God requires your soul of you and you stand before him as we all will? We will all be equal before him, all empty-handed, all with nothing, every human being standing before him. See, the question on that day will be, have you made any provision for your soul? Did you ever consider that there might be a problem that needs to be addressed? Did you ever consider what the solution might be? Or did you live life without reference to God, without making any kind of provision for your soul? It's foolish to live life without reference to God because he may require your soul at any moment. And it will be just you and him. And what you have always trusted in for security will be gone. This right now, this moment is the time to pause like this rich man did in the story. Is This is the time to pause and say, huh, I've got a problem. And to say to yourself, what shall I do? One thing that I think is interesting about Jesus' teaching is that when he's teaching, he's not always presenting the explicit gospel. 
Now, we might think that that's exactly what the Son of God would do anytime he's teaching people. Because in light of the life and death nature of the gospel, we might think that every time Jesus is teaching, he's got to be presenting the gospel, repent and believe, every time. Like, why would he ever not do that? And yet we have all these passages in the gospels where he's not preaching the explicit gospel. You ever thought about that? Why not? I mean, he's really gonna let this group of people go without sharing the explicit gospel with them? At one level, we might think that should have been all that Jesus ever talked about. Nobody talked about other stuff, and this is one of those places. And here's, here's what we have to understand, that when Jesus isn't preaching the explicit gospel, repent and believe in me, when he's not preaching that, he's often exposing our need for the gospel. That's very important to know, too, because before a person will believe the gospel, they need to understand their need of the gospel. Well, here it is. There's a day coming where your soul will be required of you and your stuff won't help you. Someone else is going to get your stuff. There won't be any security in possessions. There's your soul, naked before God. That's the need. That's the crisis. That's the problem. That's a bad situation that must be addressed. And Christ himself is the answer. See, that's the irony here. That what this guy comes to him wanting is help getting an inheritance from his brother, something temporary, when the, the true thing, the eternal thing that he really needs is standing right in front of him. Jesus Christ. The only way to enter that encounter with God, the only way for you to enter that encounter with God when you die and be able to say to your soul, soul, relax. Wouldn't you like to be able to say to your soul in that moment, to address your own soul and say, relax. Is to be trusting in the atoning, cleansing, redeeming blood of Jesus. For the one trusting in Jesus Christ in that moment, in his work on your behalf. Not your good works, not your possessions, nothing. The only way to say to your own soul, relax, is to be found in Jesus by faith. Don't be a fool. I want to invite you to make provision for your soul today by entrusting it to Jesus Christ. Give it to him. Give your soul away to Jesus. Say to him, it's yours. I am yours. I'm wrong. You're right. I'm a sinner. You are a savior. I'm temporary and you are eternal. I have been foolish and you are wise. I cannot stand before God in the judgment. You can. I must be found in you. I take shelter in you. I release today all claim to merit and goodness 
and righteousness and cling only to the cross of Jesus. That, my friends, is wise. Jesus did not come to settle petty disagreements. And as hard as it might be to say, Jesus didn't come to make your life happy. He came to make your life secure. He's the great deliverer. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Father, I I pray that just the truth of Jesus' words uh, will remain, that the Holy Spirit would, would open eyes today that have not seen the truth and beauty that is in Jesus Christ and cause dead hearts to spring to life, hearts that are in despair, hearts that have been leaning on self-righteousness and thinking that we could be good enough to please you. I I just pray for whoever might be thinking that, that they could lay all those things down today and simply trust Jesus Christ to make provision for their soul for all eternity. And no one will be ashamed who stands before you on the day of their death and says, great God, simply trusting in Jesus. Amen.